0: section five of unaddressed letters by anonymous edited by frank Athelstane swettenham this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by nemo a blue day there is a green hill you know it well it is not very far away perhaps a little over a mile but then that mile is not quite like other miles. For one thing, it takes you up 500 feet. And as that is the last pull to reach the highest point of this range, the summit of a mountain over 5,000 feet in height, the climb is steep. Indeed, one begins by going down some rough stone steps between two immense granite boulders. Then you make a half circuit of the hill by a path cut on the level and thence descend for at least 250 feet, till you are on the narrow saddle which joins this peak to the rest of the range. Really, therefore, in a distance of a little over half a mile, there is an ascent of 750 feet. And what a path it is that brings you here! For I am now on the summit, though several times on the way I was sorely tempted to sit down and put on paper, the picture of that road as it lay before my eyes. It is a narrow jungle track originally made by the rhinoceros, the bison and the elephant, and now simply kept clear of falling trees. It is exceeding steep, as I've said, and you may remember. It begins by following the stony bed of a mountain stream, dry in fine weather, but full of water after half an hour's tropical rain where the path is not covered by roots or stones, it is of a chocolate color, but in the main, it is overspread by a network of gnarled and knotted tree roots, which, in the lapse of ages, have become so interlaced that they hide the soil. These roots, the stones round which they are often twined, and the banks on either side, are covered by mosses in infinite variety, so that when you look upwards, the path stands like a moss-grown cleft in the wood. The forest through which the track leads is a mass of dwarf trees, of palms, shrubs, and creepers. Every tree, without exception, is clothed with moss, wherever there is room to cling on branch or stem. While often there are great fat tufts of it growing in and round the forks, or at any other place with convenient holding. The trees are moss-grown, but that is only where the innumerable creepers, ferns, and orchids leave any space to cover. The way in which these things climb up, embrace, and hang to every tree or stick that will give them a footing is simply marvelous. Even the great granite boulders are hidden by this wealth of irresistible vegetation. Through the green foliage blaze vivid patches of scarlet marking the dazzling blossoms of a rhododendron that may be seen in all directions, but usually perched high in some convenient tree. Then there is the wonderful magnolia with its creamy petals, the jungle apple blossom, whose white flowers are now turning to crimson berries, the forest lilac, graceful in form, and a warm heliotrope in color. These first catch the eye, but, by and by, One realizes that there are orchids everywhere and that if the blossoms are not great in size or wonderful in color, they're still charming in form and painted in delicate soft tones of lilac and brown, orange and lemon. While one with strings of large pale apple green blossoms is as lovely as it is bizarre. As for palms, The forest is full of them in every size, color, and shape. And wherever the sunlight can break through the foliage will be found the graceful fronds of the giant tree fern. Lastly, the ground is carpeted with an extravagant luxuriance of ferns and flowers and creeping things innumerable, both small and great. The wasteful abundance of it all is what first strikes one, and then you begin to see the beauty of the details. Masses of lycopodium, ringing all the changes through wonderful metallic blue to dark and light green, and then to russet brown. There are Malay primroses, yellow and blue, and a most delightful little pale violet trumpet with crinkled lip gazing towards the light from the highest point of its delicate stem. On either side of this path, One sees a dozen jungle flowers in different shades of blue or lilac. It seems to be the prevailing color for the small flowers, as scarlet and yellow are for the great masses of more striking blossom. And then there are birds. Oh yes, there are birds, but they are strange like their surroundings. At the foot of this hill, I came suddenly on a great black and white hornbill, which seeing me slowly got up and flew away with the noise of a train passing at a distance. High up the path was a collection of small birds, flitting and twittering amongst the leaves. There were hardly two of the same plumage, but most of them carried their tails spread out like fans, and many had pronounced tufts of feathers on their heads. The birds at this height are usually silent, and, when they make any sound at all, they do not seem to sing but to call and from the jungle all around, far and near, loud and faint, will be heard similar answering calls. I was surprised to hear, suddenly, some bars of song close by me, and I waited for a long time, peering earnestly into the tree from which the sound came. But I saw nothing, and heard nothing, beyond the perpetual double note, short and long, with an accent on the ladder, of a bird that must be the bore and outcast of the forest coming out into the clearing which crowns the hill i pass several kinds of graceful grasses ten or twelve feet high and the flight of steps which leads to the actual summit is cut through a mass of bracken over and through which hang the strange delicately painted cups of the nepenthes the stems of the bracken rising from a bed made rosy by the countless blossoms of a three-pointed, pale-pink starwort. In the jungle, one could only see the things within reach, but, once on the peak, one has only eyes for the grandeur and magnificence of an unequaled spectacle. The view seems limitless. It is complete in every direction, unbarred by any obstruction, natural or artificial. First, I look eastwards, to those great ranges of unexplored mountains, rising tier after tier. Their outlines clear as cut cameos against the gray-blue sky. Betwixt them, in my point of sight, flows a great river. And though it is ten or twelve miles distant as the crow flies, I can see that it is brown with floodwater, and, in some places, overflowing its banks. Nearer lie the green rice fields and orchards, and, nearer still, the spurs of the great range on whose highest point I stand. Then northward, that is the view that is usually shut out from me. It is only hill and dale, river and plain, but it is grand by reason of its extent, beautiful in color and form, intensely attractive in the vastness of those miles of mysterious jungle untrodden save by the feet of wild beast endless successions of mountain and valley peak and spur immovable and eternal you know there are gray days and golden days as there are crimson and heliotrope evenings white and alas also black nights well this is a blue day there is sunlight but it is not in your eyes. It only gives light without shedding its own color on the landscape. The atmosphere seems to be blue. The sky is blue, except on the horizon, where it pales into a clear gray. Blue forest-clad hills rise in the middle distance from an azure plain, and the distant mountains are sapphire, deep sapphire. The effect is strange and uncommon but supremely beautiful. Westward, a deep valley runs down from this range into the flat, forest-covered plains, till, nearing the coast, great patches of light mark fields of sugar canes and thousands upon thousands of acres of rice. Then the sea, the sea dotted by distant islands, the nearest thirty miles away, the farthest perhaps fifty, the morning heat is drawing a veil of haze across the distance. On a clear evening, a great island, eighty miles away to the northward, is clearly visible. I turn to the south, and straight before me rises the grand blue peak of a mountain, six thousand feet high, and not more than six miles away. It is the highest point of a gigantic mass of hill that seems to fill the great space between the flooded river and the bright, calm sea. Looking across the eastern shoulder of the mountain, the eye wanders over a wide plain, lost far away to the south in cloud-wrapped distance. Beyond the western slopes lies the calm mirror of a summer sea, whereon many islands seem to float. The coastline is broken, picturesque, and beautiful, by reason of its many indentations and the line of bold hills which rising sheer out of the water seemed to guard the shore due west i see across the deep valley into my friend's house where it crowns the ridge and then beyond to that vast plain which in its miles and miles of forest covered flatness broken by great river mouths, long vices of deep lagoons and a group of shining pools scattered over its surface forms one of the strangest features in this matchless panorama of mountain, river and plain, sea, sky, and ever-changing cloud effects. There's an empty one-roomed hut of brown palm leaves on this most lonely peak. One pushes the mat window upwards and supports it on a stick. Beneath the window is a primitive seat or couch. That is where I have been sitting cool breeze blowing softly through the wide open windows. I could not stay there any longer. The place seemed full of memories of another day when there was no need and no inclination to look outside to see the beauty of the world and the divine perfection of the creator's genius. And then I heard something. It must have been fancy. But there was a faint but distinct jingle of metal. It is better out here, sitting on a moss-grown boulder in the pleasant warmth of the sun. The swifts are circling the hill, and they flash past me with the hiss of a sword cleaving the air. I look down on the tops of all these stunted trees, heavy with their burden of creepers and mosses straining towards the light. A great bunch of pitcher plants is hanging in front of me. Pitcher plants a foot long, scarlet and yellow, green and purple. In all the stages of their growth, their lids standing tilted upwards, leaving the pitcher open to be filled by any passing shower. But my eyes travel across all the intervening miles to rest upon the sea, the sea which is now of a quite indescribable blue, basking under a sky the same color. Out there, westward, if I could only pierce the distance, I should see. Ah, the great white clouds are rising and warning me to go. Goodbye, goodbye, for you the missing words are as plain as these. End of Section 5